This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you. From WMPG, I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we're wrapping up our season by coming back to a subject we focused on last year, the experience of LGBTQ teens in Maine. We spent nine weeks talking with LGBTQ high schoolers, a parent, a teacher, and inaugural poet Richard Blanco about what it's like to be queer in Maine. Today I'll be talking with a researcher from Canada about new information about the things that schools can do to protect queer teens and the surprising benefits for all the kids in the school, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. Dr. Elizabeth Sawick is a professor of nursing and adolescent medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where she also heads up a research center on stigma and resilience among vulnerable youth. She has more than 20 years experience in research and public health practice around the health issues of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning youth. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Elizabeth. Thank you. I want to ask you to help us kind of set up the landscape here by describing how big a problem is suicide among LGBTQ youth. How, how common is it and, and how much should we be worried about this? Well, we've seen um, in surveys and population-based surveys going back 20 years, variety of places in the world, LGBTQ youth, anywhere from four to seven times more likely to be thinking about suicide and twice or more um, the odds of actually attempting suicide. There's so many reasons I can imagine that people might think why that's the case. And I know there's a a huge body of research exploring that question, but um, what do you, what's your working understanding at this point of, of why LGBTQ teens are at such a high risk? Well, when I look at the research, and, and part of the way we've sort of structured our research is to remember that um, there's the sort of the general causes or the things that we know are linked to suicide for anybody. And so the first question is, do LGBTQ youth have higher rates of those risk factors? Things like abuse or experiencing depression or Um, family history or friends who've actually died from suicide. But also, um, are there things that are unique to LGBTQ youth that aren't in the general population? So experiencing discrimination or experiencing bullying because people um, perceive you to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And this is where we've run into an unexpected um, additional we thought this was unique and then are suddenly realizing actually not so much the number of heterosexual or straight adolescents who experience harassment and discrimination because people thought they were gay is actually larger than the number of lesbian, gay, bisexual teens who experience it, in part because they're just a much bigger population. And so one of the things that we discovered is that in fact that kind of homophobia or or the bullying anti-gay bullying in school doesn't just affect gay kids it does affect heterosexual youth as well and when they've been bullied no matter 
what they've been bullied for, but certainly when they've experienced discrimination or harassment or bullying because people think they're gay, they also have higher rates of suicide attempts and depression and self-harm and problem substance use. And, and part of the reason for that is we all of us need to feel like we've got a place where we belong. We all need to matter to somebody. So Elizabeth, you've been doing this kind of research for over 20 years. That's right. What was it that first got you fascinated in this subject? Well, I was actually in university with the goal of um, being a midwife and working with pregnant teens. So I took a course on teen pregnancy. And in, in that course, one of the profs was talking about a recent adolescent health survey they had done in Minnesota. And just threw out the stat that lesbian and bisexual girls in that survey in 1986 um, had twice the rate of teen pregnancy involvement as heterosexual girls. And that made me sit back along with everybody else in the class. It's like, what? Uh, how is that possible? Like, wait a minute, where did that happen? Right. And so afterwards, I went back and talked to the prof and said, okay, so why is like, why would that be the case? And, and he said, well, we don't know. We just, we've just seen this one particular stat. We haven't actually dived more deeply into the data. And, of course, being a student, it was like, great, I'd like to do a project. Would you, you know, supervise me in, in actually doing the work to figure out what's going on here? And that research, um, which was done in, in the early 90s, took me down the road of trying to figure out so what's going on? How is it possible that lesbian and bisexual girls, which the first thing I realized was, well, they're not just having sex with girls. And there's also sexual violence that's happening. And what makes you think this is even consensual? And so there were a lot of different avenues in looking at this population-based data for why lesbian and bisexual girls might be at greater risk for teen pregnancy. And what did you find out about why? So um, part of it is, as I t told you to be before, the sort of common causes of um, what causes teen pregnancy. We went back to that. So what, what, what are the common causes that we already know from a lot of general research and do lesbian and bisexual girls and, in fact, gay and bisexual boys have higher risks of those? So things like sexual abuse history is a key predictor of teen pregnancy involvement in a lot of cases because it changes people's ability to negotiate healthy sexual relationships and negotiate contraception. Um, and again, that opportunity to look at things like if you're trying to figure out who you are relationship-wise, like, like your sexual identity and who you're attracted to, but you have to do that within a society that says this is the only way. Everybody pairs up with someone of the opposite gender and you get married and you have kids, et cetera, et cetera then there's a lot of, well, how do I know I'm not straight? If I haven't tried this, or my gosh, I see my friends who are actually being bullied, and so if I get pregnant, or at least if I have sex with someone of the opposite gender, it's camouflage. People won't think that I'm gay, lesbian, or bisexual if I'm actually having um, a, a relationship with someone and sort of dating. And 
so so there's lots of different reasons and lots of different things that contribute to that, including, as we found out way back then, um, gay and lesbian bisexual teens more likely to be kicked out or to run away from conflict in their family and rejection in the family. And once on the street, one of the ways that you survive may be trading sex for food and shelter. And you don't get to negotiate whether or not that sex is with someone you want, but also whether or not you can actually use condoms or contraception. So, so there are lots of different reasons that, that may you know, sort of contribute to this, but this is a persistent phenomenon and we've seen it over and over again. And part of what is for me fascinating about this is that we now have large-scale school-based surveys that go back to the mid-90s that are where we do probably, this is the most rigorous data and growing numbers of school surveys include a question about your orientation, and that has allowed us to actually document those health disparities. And it's also allowed us to document um, those protective factors that make a difference. So even though LGBTQ youth have higher uh, risks for suicide attempts and higher risks of discrimination and bullying that lead to that, if they have caring teachers, or they've got really supportive parents and family, they're less likely to attempt suicide than their fellow LGBTQ youth who don't have those caring relationships. So that, that caring support actually can kind of buffer that stigma. So I want to get really specific with you now about the study that you've been part of about what are things that schools can do that really start to make a difference here. And I read your work looking at explicit anti-gay uh, non-discrimination policies in schools, as well as what we call in this country GSTAs, Gay Straight Trans Alliances, um, which are kind of support groups slash social justice groups in schools. And tell me about what made you want to do this research and what were the major findings? Right. So... There's been some studies um, in, in the U.S. that have looked at the link between um, anti-bullying policies in schools. And one of the things they've sort of recognized is that when it's a generic policy um, and, and a lot of schools that have been sort of resistant to paying attention to um, homophobia in schools have, have said, well, you know, we've got an anti-bullying policy and it's generic. It's, you know, like everybody's supposed to be nice to everybody. Um, and they have begun to realize that when it comes to children and teenagers, that sometimes they're a little concrete in their thinking and they need to have things actually spelled out. And so an anti-bullying policy that doesn't also say it's not okay to call people slurs about their sexual orientation and it's not okay to say that's so gay. If you don't actually spell that out and you don't have strategies for training teachers on how to address it when you see it, um, that sort of persists even when other kinds of bullying are stopping or going away. Likewise, as you said, the GSTAs, um, that, that the kinds of, of school support, whether it's a support group or whether it's a social justice club, that are focused around paying attention to and creating a safe space for 
not just LGBTQ and, you know, questioning youth, but for their allies who feel like school needs to be a safe space for everyone, that those kinds of groups, they've cropped up all over North America. And there's been some research to sort of look at um, how youth in those alliances actually fare. You know, so, so what does it do for kids who are actually participating? But we were really interested in looking at does having one of these in your school or does having explicit anti-gay bullying policies in your school change the climate? And, and what we did in BC was we actually called every single school. So we're talking about nearly um, 300 secondary schools to find out, did you have a GSA? Okay, how long have you had one? You know, when did it start? Did you have a policy that explicitly identifies homophobia or, or anti-gay bullying? Um, and, and when did that start? And we mapped that data onto the school-based, you know, the, the province-wide adolescent health survey so that we could compare LGBT youth in schools that had GSAs and schools that didn't in what's going on in the school in terms of that experience of discrimination and the experience of, of um, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, binge drinking, problem substance use. We also realized um, it was important for us to actually think about, well, these are gay straight alliances. Does it change the environment for straight students too? And I'm not sure if we were the first, but we're one of the few places that have actually asked that question and looked at it. And it's, it's turned out to be one of those really important, glad we asked the question kinds of studies because what we found was, as you might expect, if a, a gay-straight alliance is in the schools, LGB youth are reporting lower levels of discrimination and lower levels of, of suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts. But we also found that heterosexual boys were half as likely to have attempted suicide in the past year compared to those in schools that didn't have these policies. And we also found that there was a, um, a time-dependent sort of effect, that where these have been established longer, so schools that have had them at least three years, this is where you're actually seeing really strong effects for LGB youth and for heterosexual youth. And, and since this study came out, Elizabeth, do you feel like, or had, do you have any stories about schools responding to this by going out and actually getting more GSTA started? There's, there's actually been, I mean, there was a lot of, of coverage of this, a lot of interest. And in fact, it's recently been um, shared with the, uh, the, the legislature in Alberta. And they just literally in March, um, when they opened up their legislative assembly again, um, a, a bill that had been about to be killed that would require schools to allow GSAs if students requested them and to support them um, actually got passed. And it was almost unanimously passed, um, even though that was a very conservative um, government area. I can imagine for you, Elizabeth, that must be so thrilling. Like here you are, you're working through 21,000 sets of school surveys. You're crunching numbers, you're crunching numbers, you're getting all this data. And then your work is influencing the laws of your country. What is that like for you? 
it's well i mean it's it's fabulous most of most of the research that you do i mean most of us who do research want to actually make a difference with it we're not just doing it because it's you know something to do during the week um it it really is you know the goal is actually to inform and promote the health of adolescents and specifically the health of all adolescents so so when our research actually gets taken up and it matters um yeah that's really cool but you know even beyond like the big broad sort of yes it's affecting policies it's it's being taken up by um government it's it actually can affect like general citizens i was in the airport um when this story came out and it ended up in in the media and then harper's magazine picked it up and as as they do they just do like a, a single one line thing and this the the key stat that they thought to take from the study was that straight boys actually have half the odds of suicide attempts in schools that have gay straight alliances compared to those that don't. And I, I was in this airport and I got a phone call out of the blue from a dad in Ontario. And he, he's like, I'm just like, I'm not involved in any of this. I, I just, I own a construction company, but I, I get this magazine and I read this and I had to go look this up. And I, so I found you on the university website and I found the, the press release and I just wanted to call and tell you, oh my God, this research is really, like, it saves lives. I have three boys, and I'm pretty sure they're all straight, but I know that they get, like, all kids get bullying, and some of the bullying that happens to boys at this age is about, you know, being accused of being gay or, or that kind of homophobic stuff. And it didn't occur to me that this would, you know, that these kinds of programs, these kinds of policies, they change the school for everybody, including my kids. And I've got these friends who are teachers in the Catholic school system here, and, and they have different opinions about how useful this information is, you know, like, like having these GSAs are. And I got to tell you, um, can I have the actual study? Because I want to send it to them. They need to know this. And he was just, you know, it was, it was kind of startling to be in the airport about to jump on a plane for somewhere. And have this this random dad call me, but it was it was really exciting because it's like yes, this is when when everybody recognizes that these kinds of policies and programs um, not only don't cause harm, but actually benefit more than just a very small number of youth. That's important, and and that I think helps change minds and hearts. And helps them recognize that, you know, we really do want, I mean, nobody wants young people to be dying of suicide. Nobody, nobody wants anybody to be, you know, attempting suicide to reach that, that point of, of such despair. And so when there's evidence that something can actually contribute to um, improving that or at least reducing those risks... It's, it's important to pay attention to that. It feels particularly important to me because I can imagine that there are some people who hear the stats about increased risk of suicide, increased risk of substance abuse, eating disorders, cutting, etc., associated with being gay, lesbian, bisexual, or trans, and they think, well, see, that's just evidence of how screwed up these kids are. You know, they, they must be screwed up to be gay in the first place. And... This evidence really suggests it has a very different response to that. I'm curious to hear what you think. 
Yeah. I, I, you know, I would say that we've got 20 years of evidence all over um, North America that suggests that a big part of what's driving those health disparities is rejection and violence. Um, I've done other research looking at just the exposure to bullying and violence and abuse. And if we could eliminate all violence, um, what proportion of suicide attempts among adolescents might be reduced? And, and some of the population research we've done, now this is general population, not LGB youth, says, suggests that suicide attempts might be reduced by 75% or more if we could eliminate all bullying, all sexual harassment, all abuse and violence, um, you know, assaults in, in the community that adolescents experience. And when you say that, do you, are, we, are you including exclusion and rejection? Or are you, are you literally talking physical violence and the threat of it? No, we're talking verbal violence as well. Uh-huh, okay. so, so the harassment yeah. um, as well. So wow. not necessarily just rejection, like that sort of social isolation, but, but overt kinds of things. So, you know, there is a really strong link between that kind of violence. There's also a really strong link between lack of support so that low levels of school connectedness and feeling safe and, and cared about by teachers low levels of family support and depression and self-harm and suicide and problem substance use. So, and and that's in the general population. And the other piece that usually, you know, when when this has sort of been raised, I, I do like to point out that the majority, you know, when you look at population based data, we are seeing a higher risk, but that risk is not 100%. The majority of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender teens actually don't attempt suicide and they don't end up with substance abuse problems and they actually do survive and in some cases thrive despite the abuse and often that's because they've got caring and connected and supportive family or friends or school teachers and other caring adults coaches and folks in the wider community so, um, you know, there's been a lot of research over the years that has recognized that for general adolescent development, it's important to have positive and nurturing family relationships, for example. And it's really important to have um, school connectedness, that you feel um, cared about by teachers, that you feel like you're a part of your school, that you feel safe at school, that you belong there, and you're happy to be there. That youth who have that high level of school connectedness, they do better in a variety of health issues from mental health to um, being more involved in um, volunteering and, and extracurricular activities. And so when young people don't feel connections to caring other adults and to positive peers and to a supportive family, that creates those health inequities. And we really found um, in some of our research that LGBTQ youth actually have lower levels of that school connectedness. They have lower rates of families that actually understand them and support them. And, And that can have some really profound impacts. Even parents who, you know, they love their kids and they really do um, want the best for their kids and they think they're being supportive or at least they're not being rejecting overtly. Um, 
haven't necessarily realized that they're they're worry about their kid and that bullying, so they don't want their child to to face that kind of difficulty. So they think, well, if you could just not be gay, then this would be so much better. Um, and they try, you know, they they try to respond in ways that they think are caring, but that the young person actually interprets as rejecting. And that creates that huge challenge of with the best of intentions, they're not supporting their young person in a way that they actually do feel supported. And, you know, if your parents aren't even in your corner, it's really tough. I want to ask you about the importance of hope in these kids' lives, the importance of having a future that they can picture themselves feeling happy in. Have you done any research that looks at that importance? Um, we, we haven't specifically done research in terms of that sense of, of hope for the future. Um, I know that there's, there's a lot of folks who have focused on that. It gets better and, and are thinking, you know, trying to be encouraging. Um, I would say that I've seen a lot of pushback from young people that they're at a place where it's like, no, make it better now. I don't want to have hope that sometime down the road, you know, when I'm old, like 25, <laughs> um, it gets better. Right now it feels really un, you know, unsurvivable. So, so I think it's really, it's really key for that hope for the future. You have to have those caring relationships now. You have to have hope for just tomorrow, not down the road. And, and that hope of, Having that knowledge that somebody cares about you, that you matter to somebody right now, is is an important piece of at least what we're finding in the research we're doing. That makes so much sense. So in a way, the nutshell of what I am taking from this conversation, Elizabeth, is that these two things, kind of fundamental safety, the absence of violence, as well as caring, connected relationships, these sort of the absence of rejection, that these two things are, are really the pillars of safety uh, for these kids. And that a, an explicit policy speaks to that safety issue and the GSTA speaks to that relational piece. And that if you can bring in both, you can literally save lives. And that your research documents that. Yes. And I would say that it's, it's you know, beyond school, into the community and in the, in the family as well, that those supportive relationships, the, the lack of violence, and then not just the lack of violence, but also the, the actual supportive relationships are so fundamental to healthy youth development for all young people. And yep, those work for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning teens too. Elizabeth Sawick, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, for the way it's impacting kids and schools and laws across your country and ultimately mine also. Thank you. You're very welcome. So if people want to learn more about what you are studying, like I do, if people want to follow your research and learn about your new studies, how can they do that? Well, um, our center, the Stigma and Resilience Among Vulnerable Youth Center, has a website and that's www.saravyc.ubc.ca. So saravic.ubc.ca. Um, 
We also have a Twitter account, at Saravik, S-A-R-A-V-Y-C. And a lot of our research is regularly tweeted out as it, as it happens. And what is Saravik? That's the Stigma and Resilience Among Vulnerable Youth Center. Ah, okay. And that's our research center okay, at UBC. Great. And if I was a teacher hearing this and wanting to start a GSTA in my school, where could I go learn about how to do that? If, if I've been inspired by hearing this and I want to take that next step, how can I go educate myself? So in Canada, the Canadian Teachers Federation actually has um, a manual on how to set up GSTAs. Um, in the U.S., there are a variety of sources, um, including um, GLSEN, G-L-S-E-N, the, the Gay Lesbian... Um, Gay Lesbian Straight Education Straight Network. Education Network that provides a lot of great resources on how to um, both help develop effective policies in schools for anti-homophobia and how to set up GSTAs. Wonderful. Those are great resources. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're welcome. If you like the show and would like to hear our earlier series on LGBTQ teens in Maine, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please leave a comment and subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. You can also follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio, and you can like us on Facebook. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>